On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, we discuss the life and film career of the always unique character actor, Steve Buscemi. On this episode, we're talking about the Coen Brothers' pitch black 1991 comedy, Barton Fink. Welcome to How Do You Do, Fellow Kids. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is Liam Madman O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm very mad, Doug. What? What are you mad at today, Liam? In fact, this is what you're known for, your rants. You like to go on like uh, rants about things that are going on in popular culture and mainstream news. What's, uh, what's going on in the Liam head today? Oh, not much. I was just responding to your nickname. <laughs> um, am, am I known for rants? I guess I am known for rants. Huh? I should just lean into that and stop being surprised. Well, I mean, you you like to uh, release your rants in bite-sized uh, like uh, uh, segments, right? On your Twitter feed and things like that. You're like, I'm upset about this. I'm angry about that. Seems like you're always upset and angry. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's what social media is for. Because if I don't if I don't put it on Twitter, then it might seep into my real life, and we wouldn't want that. So you know, internet friends only exist for you to abuse them mentally. So there you go. You know, I don't usually bring this up. My brother, uh, who has now uh, joined the Cinepunks Discord, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. yeah, he's been listening to our Carol Kane podcast, and mm-hmm. he compares our adversarial relationship to the kind of relationship my brothers and I had when I was growing up. Mm, so you've just been a dickhead from day one, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Actually, what I was really trying to say is, I, I'm the youngest brother, right? Oh, so really... Okay. I flipped the script a little bit, where now they were the dickheads to me, but I can be a dickhead to you, which is kind of odd because you're older than I am. Yeah, but I, I am kind of a beta, I think. I think that's more my vibe. <laughs> I'm I'm also a beta. This is definitely a double beta show. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, I, I, I think, Doug, um, you sort of, when we started doing Eric Roberts together, right? Mm-hmm. I felt intimidated because you were an established podcaster and I, I couldn't even – well, compared to me, you were an established podcaster. I knew – before we started doing Eric Roberts, I knew multiple people who listened to your former glory, No Budget Nightmares. I knew people who listened to that, who thought it was really mm-hmm. great and who loved you a lot. Now they hate you, but at the yeah. time they loved you a lot. <laughs> and so um, I came in a little bit intimidated and then we sort of slowly developed this thing with Eric Roberts and especially because – I feel like with Eric Roberts, I, it took me a long time to kind of manage having three podcasts. And so sure. there were so many times where I just felt like I was kind of winging it on that show. Whereas like on my other shows, I'm just sort of like king of my castle, you know? So, uh, so uh, here, here you are king of nothing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the flunky, you know? And so mm. I just sort of moved into that space and that's where I'm the most comfortable. Now, in real life, I'd probably make fun of you until you cried, but on here, it's like what you know, it's it's a good time. So why would why would you do that? I'm just a mean person, Doug. Liam, some big news in the Bissemiverse this uh, this last month or so. UTA, the United Talent Agency, has signed award-winning actor, director, writer, and producer Steve Buscemi and his Olive Productions banner for representation in all areas. This is from Deadline.com. Talking about Steve Buscemi, he's signed on with UTA, Liam. Very exciting news. What do, what do you think? 
I'll be honest, this this end of our world, the business end, <laughs> I don't understand any of it, and I don't know if I want to. This article is literally just a summary of Steve Buscemi's entire career, right? It's just everything, basically, of note that he's done, and saying that, of course, like he's, he's a uh, producer. I guess uh, Olive Productions is uh, his television and film production company uh, with producer Ren Ar- Arthur. Uh, Buscemi and Olive will continue to be represented by the Gotham Group. I don't know what that means either. I feel like sometimes there are certain business aspects of film and TV that I probably should understand a little better than I do. I guess so. I mean, yeah, it is... The the reality is that the business is actually what controls what we're talking about when it comes to the art of film and, and TV. What? what? <laughs> right. And so it would be helpful if we actually understood what the fuck was going on with it. Uh, but sometimes, I mean, some of it I do get. It's not, it's not a total mystery. But this whole thing where it's like, okay, so he's, it's a different – didn't he have an agency before? Why does this matter? It's just I – I don't know enough to know what these changes mean. But I'm sure there are people we know, maybe even people in our audience, who could describe the history of certain eras of filmmaking based upon what agencies people were working with, right? Like I'm sure whole movies, even genres of movies exist because certain agencies had good relationships with certain directors and actors. Now, Liam, you're kind of like my agent, right? Because I provide uh, content for your website, Cinepunks. And then it's your job to go out there and promote it and get me more work and things like that. So how that's, how's that going for you so far? I mean, you're a real, you're a real poison apple for me, Doug. <laughs> Here I am. I finally have a weekly show that's re- reliable and people can really bank on it. And it's like I might as well be delivering them a, a rotten milk or something, you know? <laughs> I mean that is the the uh, the double edged sword of your relationship with me is absolutely willing to produce content on a weekly basis, only willing to produce content that has very very little interest to a mainstream audience. I mean, here's the thing: I'm mm. I, I only talk to the people who like me, Doug. So yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of people who listen to the show who are like, "Yeah, there's Doug, and then that wet blanket, Liam. Ugh, what a bummer, you know." But uh. But yeah, I mean, are there people who are like, I can't listen to your other show because of Doug? Yeah, that happens, you know? You've got a particular voice. You've got a particular voice. (laughs) What's that supposed to mean? I really actually do want you to elaborate on that. People tell me all the time, and this has happened, literally has happened within the past week, where I'd be talking to someone, they're like, you know, you have a voice, you should be doing podcasts. Right, and I think that's true. I think, though, there are people, I mean, you know, I I understand this is a great irony here. I think think there are people who would both describe your voice as a very radio-friendly voice (laughs) and then explain that's why they couldn't possibly fucking listen to our (laughs) podcast. Because they just want someone who's going to be like, yeah, so, uh, you know, I just, uh, yeah, you know. Just, you know, they have that, I'm not saying I can't. I'm a real life person. This is how I talk. I know it's insane. I I think if people (laughs) do, I think if people do the garbled, fucked up uh, accent of of your land of your birth, they'd understand how you have such an affective way of talking because you are you are trying to get away from something that would Uh be much more. No one would be out there like if you still had. Some of the examples, I mean, I'm sure there are less obvious examples, right? Sure. But some of the TikToks that your wife has sent me of people <laughs> with that accent, it's like, I'm so glad there's closed captioning on them because I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? 
My wife, like like half the time that she shows me videos online, it's me just translating uh, 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 like different Newfoundland popular culture and translating speech to say, oh, he was talking about this. Because I, have the, I can walk in both worlds. That's my whole deal, Liam. But yes, I have a slight affectation in terms of the way I speak because I come from a place that's very difficult to understand. But this is just how I talk now. There's nothing I can do about it. I don't think you should. I mean, don't, I, just because there are people who have this opinion, Doug, doesn't mean I actually care about it. I actually <laughs> think that the way you talk is like preferable to myself where, I, you know, I occasionally use big words and stuff. But most of the time I'm just saying like and um and what the fuck over and over and over again. Yeah. No, I know. I, I podcast with you. I hear it all the time. Uh, I hate <laughs> you so much. Yeah, You hate me. I hate these people who hate my voice. It makes me feel very self-conscious, Liam. Maybe I should fall back into my Newfoundland accent and see how people feel about that. But Liam, we need to talk about Steve Buscemi. I don't know if you know this. We're, oh, we're doing a podcast. Yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> over, at the, over at the digitalfix.com, the Con Air director accidentally imprisoned Steve Buscemi for real. This is about Con Air director Simon West. He told the Digital Fix in an interview that he accidentally locked Steve Buscemi in for real while making his cult action movie. On busy work days, it's easy for things to fall through the cracks. We all know that. Just ask Simon West, the director of Con Air. He was so busy making one of the best action movies, if not one of the best movies ever made, that he completely forgot one of his lead actors, Steve Buscemi, was chained up on set. He says, Buscemi is great. He's the nicest, easiest guy in the world. You know, I had the costume designers make this outfit to strap him in. I wanted a leather mask, and I wanted it all a bit old school. So it's all leather. It's not like high tech. It was really uncomfortable, he continued. So we shot the scene of him being dragged into the plane and put in the cell. So we got that with him just looking with those eyes, and we're like, great, now we'll move on to the next scene. So I set up, I started shooting with other actors, and after about 20 minutes, I realized, oh shit, we never let Steve out of the cage he's still in there like and he can't say anything he still got his mask on but he never started banging on the door i went back in and let him out i'm going sorry steve i completely forgot you he said oh it's okay the poor guy was in those restraints for way longer than the scene liam steve Buscemi putting up with being <laughs> locked in a cage for a movie what do you think i can imagine him being very patient as much as he plays very angry men sometimes mm-hmm. i don't imagine steve buscemi and buscemi in real life is actually very angry it also, I mean, this is going to sound a little bad, but it's just like, these fucking actors, man. Right? <laughs> we got to treat them with these kid gloves. 20 minutes, he was shooting. He was on a set, just had to sit there for 20 minutes, and we're supposed to be like, oh, sorry. We couldn't let, we couldn't dare let you just sit there for a little bit. What else was he going to do? Sit in the background, go back to his trailer? Who gives a shit? Let him be there. Boy, this is weird for me to say, considering we do like Steve Buscemi and we have a podcast about him. I mean, I assume you just hate everything you love, and this is part of that. But for me, yeah, I mean, treat him. I, I, what, what <laughs> yeah, are, treat him. <laughs> well, I, I mean, well, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, treat him like a king, and then I'm like, well, what set is he even on? He's on Con Air, right? Yeah. As, as far as I'm concerned, he's the most important man on set. Yeah, I said it. Oh boy. So, so because he's the most important, he's not first on the call sheet, right? Probably Nicholas no, Cage, John obviously, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But but you think that he deserves the amount of respect that you don't just leave him locked up in the background of your scenes? Is that what you're trying to say? That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, Liam. What do you think about Mark Twain? Um, I like uh, how much of him seems to be based on bullshit. I appreciate right? that. And, what do you mean? Uh, it just seems like a lot of his life seems to have been uh, fucking with people, and I, and I like that. Uh, but I, I don't know that many Mark Twain's. Like, I think I know a couple of the short stories, but right. I never bothered to read any of the longer things he's known for. 
Right, because of the racial slurs in them. Uh, sure, yeah, let's say that. Have you, ever, have you ever seen the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? It's a two-parter where uh, Guinan, uh, the character played by Whoopi Goldberg, she interacts with Mark Twain, who actually ends up on the Enterprise at one point. Um, I'm going to say yes, because I think I've seen every episode of The Next Generation. But you don't remember this one? Nope. It's a pretty notable episode. Sometimes I do an impression. My wife hates it. When I I should actually I don't even need to say that anymore. Anytime I say I do an impression, I can you can just fill in my wife hates it afterwards. But I do an impression of the sounds that Mark Twain makes in that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation because he goes Mister Data, so that sort of thing. Um, but um, yeah, Mark Twain. We're talking about Mark Twain for a reason, Liam. Why is that? CNN gets exclusive rights to Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize ceremony honoring Adam Sandler. So this is the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American humor. And uh, PBS has been broadcasting this ceremony for the past 20 years or so. But this year, the year 2023, CNN is going to show the ceremony at 8 p.m. on March 26th, just a week after the March 19th live event. I'm bringing this up for a reason, Liam, which is that the ceremony is scheduled to feature Jennifer Aniston, Judd Apatow, Drew Barrymore, Conan O'Brien, Chris Rock, David Spade, among others. Hopefully not some of those horrible people that are in the kind of general vicinity of Adam Sandler. But one of the people that are going to be uh, featured on this program is Steve Buscemi, who has, of course, appeared in a number of Adam Sandler projects. So uh, are you excited to check out the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize Ceremony on March 26th? Uh, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, you don't sound very enthusiastic, considering that you must love Steve Buscemi, and he's going to be on this program. I mean, a lot of people I love do a lot of things I don't care about, so... What if I was to tell you that former winners of this prize included John Stewart... David Letterman, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Dave Chappelle. It's a real mixed bag. <laughs> rank them. Of those four people, rank them one to four. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 no, <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> you know what? I'll let you off the hook. Who would you put number four? I mean, that's, again, I don't really want to, but... Uh... I, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd probably go Dave Chappelle. I'm just putting that out oh, there. Oh, notorious turf Dave Chappelle at number four. Well, now that you put him at number four, rank the other three. No, I really don't want to. <laughs> well, 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 maybe we'll talk about it when it occurs, when it's on CNN on March 26th. Liam, uh, today we are here to talk about the Coen Brothers film Barton Fink. Uh, a few years ago, I did a roundtable podcast where we covered every film of the Coen Brothers. So at this point, I've watched all of them. I have not watched the, any of the solo Coen Brothers films since then, but I've, I'm all caught up. What's your history with Barton Fink? Have you seen this movie before? Yeah, only one time. It, it was one of the few Coen Brothers movies I hadn't seen. Um, uh, and then a few years ago, uh, me and my wife decided to watch it uh, because I just felt like it seemed insane to me that there was a Coen Brothers movie I hadn't seen. Right. right. And so I just, you know, I made time for it, and I found it – great but also a bit inscrutable so when you suggested it for this episode i got really excited because i hadn't had a chance to go back to it and i'm really glad that we did interesting in my mind for some reason i always package it with another movie and that other movie is david cronenberg's naked lunch even though they don't really i mean they have some minor thematic 
similarities, but they have kind of a similar look to it. I think what I think of is the color brown, you know, the color brown and maybe green. <laughs> the set kind of uh, design in these two movies have enough similarities, and because they came out around the same time period, I always package them together. Though, of course, there's a, a, a even though they're both could be considered darkly comedic, I certainly find the Barton Fink a little bit more um, easy to interpret <laughs> compared to Naked Lunch. Uh, how about Naked Lunch, Liam? Any, are you a fan of that movie? Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I, I mm-hmm. the first time the first time I saw it, I wasn't into it. But that's because it was one of the first Cronenberg movies I saw that wasn't classic Cronenberg. If sure. that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. so I think I just didn't like it because of it wasn't what I wanted. I thought mm-hmm. uh, I rewatched it um, in grad school and thought, oh, there's more here. Actually, I think I do like this. I'll read the book. And that will help me with the movie. And mm. then I never read the book. And so <laughs> I, I haven't returned to it because I keep thinking I'm going to read the book and I haven't done that. Uh, but I do want to go back to it. I, I'm i leaning towards the idea that uh, I like every David Cronenberg movie, although sure. I've never seen Fast Company. Um, but I've seen, I think, all the others now. And mm. even the ones that I didn't like before, I want to go back to to see if maybe my opinion has changed. Like, for example... I wasn't a big fan of Existence the first time I yeah, saw yeah, it, yeah. but mm-hmm. a lot of people I know really love it, so I kind of want to give it another chance because I've only seen it the one time. Sure. I really like it, uh, but it is a movie that I think you need to have certain expectations going into it. But also, um, I really love Fast Company, but it is definitely <laughs> – I can understand why people like they don't praise it or put it in their top five David Cronenberg list, but it's just a really fun, you know, very Canadian movie, and I guess I, I, I kind of uh, attach to it in that way. Yeah, very much worth seeing, but it's also the one that you can kind of ignore when it comes to his entire career. Maybe that it's, end. It's mm, one of those things where the movies that are the obvious sort of predictable Cronenberg movies are such bangers that I'm not surprised that sometimes people find it difficult when they go off that path. It's it's even worse than with John Carpenter, where I think it's also true that John Carpenter has certain movies that almost everyone has seen and loved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when people leave those movies, there might be a little disconnect uh, with the other films in his in you know in his filmography. With Cronenberg, I think it's even more stark that if if you're obsessed with Videodrome and you jump from Videodrome to whatever Cosmopolis or <laughs> right. uh, you know even like from Videodrome to Shivers might be weird. Let alone yeah. to then mm-hmm. uh, what's the what's the uh, sorry, my brain just... It's okay. Uh, Madam Butterfly, is that right. him? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that shift, because there is such a actually really impressive and and um, interesting variety there, I think it actually it makes it more sympathetic when people go, oh, I only like these four Cronenberg movies. It's like, well, I, I get that. I get why those are the ones that appeal to you. But for me, I'm really starting to feel like I need to like make a list of the ones that I low rate and rewatch them. Mm-hmm. And if they work for me now, then this might actually be my favorite director or one of my favorite directors, you know? Sure. Yeah. Just like with Carpenter, you really need to revisit Memoirs of an Invisible Man. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, for, well, this is actually thematic for our episode. Mm. I, I am not the biggest Coen Brothers fan, but I do find them consistently great. So like if I was going to list like my 20 favorite movies, I don't know that there would 
be more than one Coen Brothers movie on that list. And I, I mm. don't ask me to do it. I don't. I've never done it, so I don't know. But I will say that when it comes to reliability. I find them more reliable than most other directors. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so then with like John Carpenter, I might say John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors, but there are Carpenter movies I think are bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm not convinced other than that one with uh, George Clooney that I really don't like. I don't know that there are other bad Coen brothers. Oh, the Lady Killers. Sorry, I forgot about the Lady Killers. Yeah, you forgot about the Lady Killers. And in fact, the one that you were thinking of before was named Escapes. The one with Catherine Zeta-Jones, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that was actually okay. Uh, but I think Lady Killers is basically the exception that proves the rule for the right. entire career of the Coen. R- right, it might be because the Lady Killers is so bad, you realize like, oh, the, all these other ones are so good. You know, I don't know. But the, the, point, the point being is that Cronenberg might be one of those directors where, like the Coen brothers, I actually can rely on him, that he's done so many movies I think are great that I can kind of rely on him being someone who puts out stuff, even if only, well, with him, it's probably like more like four or five of his movies are like in some of my favorite movies of all time. You asked me not to, to ask you about your top 20. I don't know if that extended to me asking you if one of the Coen brothers movies were going to be in it, which one would it be? I mean, I would. I mean, let me say first. I think that's a harder decision than uh, someone might make it out to be because I sure. do like a lot of their movies. Today, I'd say Inside Lewin Davis because yeah. it's the one that I've returned to recently the most and and really thought about. Uh, Runner up might be a serious man, but right. but then I'm also low rating The Big Lebowski, a movie I've watched hundreds of times. And so while I might say like, well, it's so obvious and it's so whatever. One rewatch of that movie might remind me how brilliant it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's again not that dissimilar from like Big Trouble in Little China. It's so a part of my DNA that right. I actually low rate it because it's so familiar. I'm sure if I go back to it, I might be like, "Oh shit, I'm right. This is really good." You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, right now it's probably a serious man or Inside Llewyn Davis uh, until I rewatch something else and decide I love that too. Yeah, that is something about the Coen Brothers' career is that I don't have a clear favorite, right? Sometimes I'll tell you Miller's Crossing, far and above. That's the movie I love from their huh. career. Then it, other other times it's Inside Lewin Davis. Other times it's Blood Simple, right? I mean, there are a lot of movies that I pick. For, the, yeah, please. For, for me, for years, it was Raising Arizona. Uh, because, yes, But that was, the first, that was the first one I saw. That was one of the first indie movies I saw in the theater, Raising Arizona. Right. I was mm-hmm. way too young. I didn't understand it, but it, I, was, I was obsessed with it, and I rewatched it on video a couple of times, and I was like, this is one of my favorite movies ever. And mm-hmm. it was, year, of course, as I've, we've said before on this show, it was years later till I figured out that these were the same people – who made The Big Lebowski, another movie I was watching <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> well, Liam, uh, I think we've reached that point. We need to take a break. When we return, we're going to talk about it. 1991's Barton Fink. For the first time in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, one film has swept all the major awards. Barton Fink. Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, man. Is that him? Is that Bob Fink? Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. 
a renowned New York playwright is enticed to California to write for the movies and discovers the hellish truth of Hollywood. It's Barton Fink from the year 1991, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and written, of course, by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring John Turturro as Barton Fink, John Goodman as Charlie Meadows, and somebody else, Judy Davis, Michael Lerner, doing great work here, John Mahoney, Tony Shalhoub, John Polito, Steve Buscemi, of course, as well. Other familiar faces, but some of those actors are kind of stock Cohen Brothers actors. They show up again and again. This was the first film to win all three major awards, the Palme d'Or, Best Director, and Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festivals. Also, it was unanimously chosen for the Palme d'Or. I believe that the... Jury uh, head that year was Roman Polanski, of all fucking people. <laughs> uh, so we've talked about it. You've seen this movie once before, Liam. I have to say I've seen it a number of times at this point. It is one that I return to quite a bit, though I don't usually rank it amongst like the top three Coen brothers for me. That might change after this most re- recent visit, but let's get your thoughts. What do you think about Barton Fink? You know, the first time I saw it, I said it was more... I mean, I, I really enjoyed it, but it, I was more struck by how confusing it was or maybe how abstract it was because I wasn't right. expecting that from then. Even some of their more difficult movies, like, I, again, A Serious Man is a good example, or mm-hmm. even, um, uh, what is it, The Man Who Wasn't There? Is that the black yeah. and white mm-hmm. one? Uh, those are, can be frustrating, but they're not, they don't have such abstract moments or maybe surreal moments as this movie does. Uh, but on this watch, a couple things stuck out to me more that made me help me think about it. I didn't notice how much Fink's Judaism is part of the movie the first time I sure. watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how how interesting that is to think about within the context of the time and things like that. Um, and for some reason, though the whole movie is kind of a sweaty nightmare throughout, uh, the only part that really struck me in its just over-the-top insanity was the ending, which I think will always be crazy. That's just such uh, an explosive, cathartic ending to the movie. Um, the stuff up till then, yeah, it's it's weird. It's it certainly pushes the boundaries of credulity, but uh, but it doesn't. It didn't strike me quite as um, strange, and maybe that's because since the last time I've watched it, I've watched a lot more truly surreal things. Uh, and this this felt more like a heightened reality than a fantasy, or I guess fantasy is the wrong word because that has certain connotations. But you know what I mean? It, it felt a little more connected to the world than I think the first time I saw it, uh, even if some of the dialogue really pushes you to pay attention. Um, there's something about uh, John Turturro as Barton Fink that uh, while I found it more silly uh, the first time I watched it, or again, silly is not the right word, but more comedic, this time there was also something that felt very um, tragic in who he sure. is. Mm-hmm. And and so much more did I start to wonder is is how, how much do the Coens identify with Barton Fink a little sure. bit? Uh, and and I, think I, I think I was not thinking about that the first time I saw it. I was more... I don't know, maybe trying to figure it out or understand what was going on. And this time I felt myself more just kind of vibing with it. Uh, but I was still struck by how it manages to be really funny. Like, it's a very funny movie, but there's so much anxiety and tension and just mm. sweaty, I want to escape all of this, that, like, the comedy is there, but I'm not fucking laughing most of the time because I'm just just goddamn uncomfortable uh and and uh that's not a criticism that is praise i think that's amazing so <laughs> i wonder if the coen brothers could make a movie which has a self-insert of themselves 
where they don't mock that character. You know what I mean? No. Where it's like there is they recognize that this that that Barton Fink, the character, the main character of this, is a talented has a talent, right? People recognize it, though a lot of the people who praise him haven't actually read his work. And he does have certain ambitions for telling certain kinds of stories, even if there is a suggestion that maybe he's telling the stories of people that he doesn't really connect to or necessarily understand. I just I like the idea that, you know, this movie was apparently born out of um, the Coens having difficulty finishing the script for Miller's Crossing and just kind of they, they kind of uh, built it on the idea of their own writer's block. And then, you know, of course, that would then, you know, come out with a self-insert character with stuff that they're familiar with in terms of the relationship with, with Hollywood. I'm glad you brought up the Jewishness Jewishness of it, uh, particularly after seeing A Serious Man, which is so steeped in Jewishness. And going back to this, where it, not only is it very much entrenched in that time period during World War II, even though it's never spoken of explicitly, except for that scene where he's dancing at that, uh, that the club with all the soldiers, that he's, you know, probably because he was wearing glasses or whatever, isn't able to fight in it. Um, I guess while this movie is taking place in terms of this, the, the timetable of it, fucking Pearl Harbor is attacked and it's never even mentioned really in the script at all. But just the idea that he encounters anti-Semitism all over the place. You even have the John Goodman character doing a, a, um, a Heil Hitler before he kills someone in it. It's just a, it's certainly something that adds to that tension that's always bubbling in the background, even though it's not necessarily explicit. The tone of this movie is something when I first saw it that I'd never seen a movie with this kind of tone, you know, where it is pitch black, it's very dark, but it is so... The, the surrealism isn't so surreal that it's um, it feels like a, a different reality. It just feels like kind of a heightened reality. But that's what's something I wanted to ask you next, which is how much literal truth do you think that you're seeing here? Like this relationship between uh, Barton Fink and Charlie Meadows, is that something that you think actually is taking place? Or is this sort of in his head? Or, or maybe the whole movie is supposed to be more symbolic than literal? I think oh, uh, my feeling is that... Um... I think all everything that Coen Brothers d- does for me, um, to to a more or less of an extent, uh, hints at metaphors that aren't there. Right. So like, you know, Charlie is not only a guy who says Heil Hitler and is a murderer; he's also German, right? You know, sure. like, and as you said, there's all this the army stuff and World War II and his Jewish and um, you know he's working for this studio head who keeps throwing around uh, anti-Semitic slurs while also praising you know him as a writer and then entrapping him in this system of uh, ex- exploitation and all all these things are sort of going on but my suspicion is that I, I don't think they ever mean anything to be a pure metaphor the way that people often often mean right right like, uh, uh, there are there are echoes and hints of things but really I think that the reality this movie is dealing in on one hand represents larger ideas and um, I think the suggestion of the the actual anarchic hell that the hotel turns into is really there to have a climax that then leads to the fact that his triumph of the script is meaningless. And now he's going to go toil away in these fucking bungalows and not have any of his movies made and like waste his life. Right. Which is, and and I think all of that is not even meant to then represent real things that happen in Hollywood, though that did happen in Hollywood. Right. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. Lots of writers ended their lives there. Uh, But, but I think it's not really meant to be that it's really meant 
in a way to get back to the central issue here, which is writer's block, which is your suspicion that after literally overcoming a serial killer and surviving a deadly fire to deliver your script, that the people who actually make the real decisions are going to go, it sucks, we're not doing it. Because <laughs> that's real. That's a real thing that happens. It's not like pretend, right? And so, uh, you know, is, is the place literally on fire? Is Charlie actually whatever, Hans, whatever the fuck his name was? And, you know, all, all these things that feel... Even the idea of uh, the other two characters being murdered the way they sure. are. All mm-hmm. of it feels so unbelievable. I don't think the Coen brothers care particularly much, you know, in, right. in, in that sense, what's the difference between this movie and the big Lebowski? Like if you really think about the big Lebowski, none of that shit makes sense top to bottom. And yet it's a, a gritty noir. In a, if, if you look at it in another way, yeah, you know, absolutely. with the, the weird thing about that, of course, is that, the Coen brothers and John Turturro have talked for years about the potential of a Barton Fink sequel, like where, which which takes the character maybe thirty years in the future. And John Turturro straight up made a sequel to The Big Lebowski, or at least a a spin off of it. The, both of those ideas seem impossible to me. It's like after this movie ends, this character ceases to exist because if you think about it too much, it doesn't make literal sense, right? But I, again, I think this has become a theme in a lot of their movies of how little. That matters, you know, and one of the reasons I've been obsessed with The Serious Man is I think at the beginning of A Serious Man, they give you a way to read A Serious Man. Mm, Absolutely. And and that way to read it is, why are you trying to read A Serious Man? And then I wonder, is this what they're saying about all their movies? And in a sense, isn't that, I mean, what's going on with Barton Fink partly is he's in love with this romantic idea of the working people. He could not be less interested in working people, which right. is probably – I mean, he they never use the term socialist in the movie, but that's true of a lot of, 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 of socialists, right? Like Absolutely. a lot of people who see the injustice of the system don't actually want to interact with the people who are the victims of the system because it makes us uncomfortable, you know? And I, 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 I'll live into that. Uh, I, I probably have a little more grit on me than Barton Fink does, but there are plenty of people who – I want to advocate for who I don't want to have lunch with, right? And uh, and so I think that the the reality is like he's an exaggeration of something that the Coens are seeing a little bit in themselves, right? right? And especially in the way that people are praising his work who don't seem to actually care about the work. And I wonder if that's part of what the Coens were feeling coming into the Hollywood system of like – everybody's saying all this stuff and we're just trying to make movies, you know? I, I can't help but think about them starting their career working with Sam Raimi sure. and how that should change some of the highfalutin things people want to say about some of their movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, recently I watched the Preston Sturgis movie Sullivan's Travels, which is where the title for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? comes from. The the director right. character in that film is trying to make a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But the major theme of that movie is that same sort of disconnect where this kind of highfalutin, you know, successful Hollywood guy, he wants to make a movie about regular people who are suffering during the Great Depression and he's going to go out and spend time with them and he's going to learn how to do it. And what he discovers in that movie is that when people are really depressed, they don't want to watch entertainment about people being depressed. They right. want to watch yes. something entertaining, something that lifts them up. And I think that's something that maybe has informed a lot of the Coen brothers' career, but it's also the, the the disconnect that we have here, which is how can a person write about everyday people when they don't feel that direct connection with them? And in fact, as is as is pointed out in the film, even by Matt, the Mad Mad Munt's character, 
that he doesn't listen to him, right? He has stories that to, to tell. There are real stories from real people who have experienced these things, but he doesn't want to listen to those stories. He just wants to come up with his own. Uh, and it's an interesting kind of, uh, I, I wonder what sort of critique the Coen brothers are throwing at themselves with that, right? I mean, I know they're, they, they're all from Detroit, right? I mean, you imagine that they have a little bit more of a connection to the common everyman <laughs> than maybe some directors who have nothing, uh, uh, have no background in something like that, but, but I don't know. But they've certainly made written about a lot of characters from very varied backgrounds. Maybe it's something that they they it is more of a anxiety that they feel as opposed to something that stops them from writing about these kind of characters. But uh, you know, the, what's more working class than some of the characters they've made, including someone like the dude from The Big Lebowski? But I wonder if it's that's just the. I, I think one of the things that can happen when with a movie, some of the movies that they do, is worrying too much about the context. Uh, as opposed to the larger sort of idea. So sure. their anxiety might not be as literal as it is for Barton Fink that they are w- representing working class people. It might mm-hmm. be that they're writing about things they don't know. Right, and right, that, right. And that the act of creation is often an act of pure ego. So, like, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of directors who make great art are fucking bad listeners that I wouldn't want to be on a team sure. with at work. You know what I mean? Like, how, how many how many people... I mean, again, you know what this reminds me of, and this will be annoying for people who listen to my other shows because I bring it up <laughs> too much, is, is, is Tar. It makes me think of Tar. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 that uh, genius is the word we use for creative people who we let do whatever the fuck they want because they're creative. And genius doesn't actually mean anything about intelligence because intelligence, even as an idea, is a made-up bullshit thing. People, certain people are good at certain things. And if you're good at the right thing, then we let you walk around like you're the king of the world and do whatever the right. fuck you want. Right. That, right. That's what the system is. And so he's not there yet. That's part of the funny thing in the movie is he has these big ideas for himself without half the accolades to justify it. He's got his first, these are his first accolades ever. And he strolls into Hollywood like he's going to just know what to do. And he's so offended at the idea that they're going to want him to write a wrestling picture. Like, what the fuck, man? No one cares. And and yet he also knows, There's he's in that weird position that I'm sure a lot of artists have, which is, I have a voice. That voice is important. People should hear me. Also, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, and I'm a total fraud. <laughs> and I think every, not every, most artists I know can identify with both those things. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sure that you have something important to do, but you're also sure that you'll never do it because you're such a fucking fraud. I like also the, I mean, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but one of the, the things that Coen brothers are known for is that they don't let people change their scripts at all, right? That when, like, every, uh, every word that is written on the script, they don't let people improvise. They want it said exactly as they write it. And, I mean, you know, you can have different perspectives on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think they found a lot of success with it. So I think like, the proof is in the pudding there. But it's just, it's interesting that obviously they take what they write very seriously while also mocking the process of writing to a certain extent and the kind of people who take themselves so seriously in this movie. What do you think of this John Turturro performance as Barton Fink? I mean, it's one of my favorite John Turturro performances, which is not to disrespect some of the more serious things he's done, but this level of ridiculousness is what I want from him most of the time. It's not quite (laughs) as silly as some of the other things he's done, you know? Um, But it is heightened in a way that I fucking... I mean, him and John Goodman in this are batting a thousand. And not that... In fact, I would also argue 
that there are a ton of great performances in this thing. Like everyone, this is one of their movies where it really feels like everyone knows somehow, despite how early this is in their career, mm-hmm. everyone knows what fucking movie they're they're in, and yeah. they they're showing up to do the characters that they should be doing. No one is off. No one is like taking this more seriously than they should. Everyone right. is doing it. It's it's all arch and it's all kind of campy and it's all just really great to me and uh, and the the highlights of what is a unbelievable group of of actors really doing it is the combo of John Turturro and John Goodman who I both yeah. think are just amazing in this and really selling stuff that is not easy to make work you know when Barton is preaching while refusing to listen to you know, whatever the guy's real name is, I already forgot what it is. Months, Mad, 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 yeah, Mad, but, but Charlie Meadows, yeah, yeah, Charlie Meadows. You believe that he has no idea that he's being an asshole. He really thinks like he's doing it, and he's really representing Charlie, and him and Charlie are connecting on a deep level. He believes that. Like that's hard to fucking sell such a bullshit, crazy thing. You know, it's a really difficult relationship to to put on screen in a way where the Charlie Meadows character is both likable. But unnerving, right? You know something's off with him even from the beginning. But that they have a real camaraderie together, even though you know there's an anger there that he doesn't listen to him and things like that. But their relationship is a real relationship, and it builds in a really interesting way to the point where, of course, Charlie Meadows, you know, frees him and allows him to survive again. If you take this literally or not, but boy, that that John Goodman performance. I think I wrote on Twitter that this movie has like a half dozen actors doing like the best work of their career. You're right. Everyone seems to know what the assignment is. Everyone knows what the character. Our characters are supposed to be Michael Lerner in this. I think is unbelievable. Agreed. The, yeah, he is so fucking good. And I mean, he's been good in a lot of stuff, but here it's just like they gave him the ball and he just ran with it. that part near the end where he turns around and he's wearing the uniform that he had made for him because yeah. <laughs> because he's been drafted into the war. I, I mean, mean the, it's lot, so... the fucking line that is actually one of the most underrated parts of the movie because of the line that the Japanese don't want him to get into the war. <laughs> That's right. Like like the whole country's <laughs> over there going, you know, there's this Hollywood guy who wants to get into the war. If he does, <laughs> it's over for us. Like I, it's it's said with such confidence and conviction and like everyone knows it. Like he's going to say it and everyone in the world's going to go, "Yeah, that's right. That's right, man." You know like I, oh my god. And he, you know what it is, Doug? I feel like as directors in certain movies, not in all their movies, because I think they adjust to the script, but in certain movies, and this is, I think, is one of the best examples, the Coens see something in each of these actors that is true to the sorts of characters that actor plays, but is some sort of heightened, yes. insane, mm-hmm. mega version of it. So, like, what John Goodman is doing here is not a surprise, but it's so much more of that than he's done other places. Yeah. John Turturro, same thing. Even, um, I forget his name, but the agent guy who would be Monk later. Yeah, uh, yeah Tony Shalhoub, of course. Yeah, Tony Shalhoub's, the character, the agent character he plays in this, you're like, yeah, he's done this before, but this is the most this he's ever done, you know? Like, <laughs> holy shit, you know? And that's, again, I think it's every, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe there's someone who who isn't amazing, but for me, everyone in this movie is doing some insane version of something else they've done perfectly including our man which we'll get to in a little bit i just think it's 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 some cases it's obvious like i think with john goodman no one saw this movie and was like oh my god i can't believe he did that like that felt but i think some of these other things i believe it but i'm also not sure that they've had the opportunity to go to that level before this movie you know what i mean 
Yeah, absolutely. I also like that the Coen brothers, they'll take actors that they've liked. Like in this movie, Steve Buscemi doesn't have a big part. Later on, they'll put him in Fargo and give him one yeah. of the greatest roles yeah. of his career. But they do that back and forth too, where John Polito in Miller's Crossing has this amazing, you know, uh, really central role. Here he has to take a back seat a little bit to the Michael Lerner character. Same with John Goodman, who pops up in a number of the, of the different films. And John Turturro has that amazing role in Miller's Crossing, but shows up just for those few scenes in The Big Lebowski, right? Just, I just like the idea. It's like, this actor is going to be right for this because we know how good they can be doing things like that, but they don't have to be the center of attention all the time. I just really like the variation on that. And I also kind of, I always get a little bit, it always feels a little bit good to see a director or a set of directors in this case, work with actors again and again. It just feels more like a put on a, like let's put on a show type thing, even if they're very, very specifically crafted in this particular case. Um, are there any highlight moments for you? I mean, we've talked about a few of them. I, I think all of those interactions between Barton Fink and Charlie Meadows are great, and Barton Fink also with Jack Lipnick, the character by, played by Michael Lerner. Any other moments that stand out to you in the film? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 we've said it, but let me be really clear. Sure. Every moment that John Turturro is on screen, even from the very beginning, <laughs> is unbelievable to me. It's just... I. I, I He's such an accomplished actor that maybe people forget about this performance in some ways. Yeah. But mm. for me, it's like f- this is so clear the sort of things he's capable of. And um, he's had great opportunities since this movie. But man, what it's I, I just every time I think of a moment in the movie that I, that I am impressed by, he's like probably there, you know, not, now that might seem <laughs> obvious because he's in a lot of movie. But I mean, like he's pretty much in every scene in the entire movie. But he's but he's such a but he's a part of it. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. That I, part I, where he's dancing at that club is yeah, holy amazing. Shit. And then he yeah. goes in that big rant about I am a writer. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I think it's 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 a little awkward in a way that I think it's meant to be. But um, sure. you know, it's uh, the can you remind me the name of the uh, the female character who is Audrey Taylor, the, the yeah, played by Judy Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Judy Davis, it's you know, it's it's clearly a role that is diminutive in some ways. I think this sure. is a, a very masculine movie and she is sort of alternating between two men who are too filled with their own bullshit to actually see her mm-hmm. as who she is in the world, you know? Um, but I think that's on purpose. I think I think if you're paying attention, it's clear that they have made a decision about that. That's not something yeah. they're doing mm-hmm. uh, uh, unintentionally. It's meant to represent something about that world and and when she just sort of flippantly admits that she's written some of this other guy's work <laughs> it doesn't even want to take credit for it right yeah it's so good it's so you know john mahoney like he's doing something but that thing he's doing is made better because of judy davis you know yeah so the scene where she sleeps with barton fink it's so fucking awkward it's it it, it both <laughs> It both speaks of a certain kind of romanticism you would see in a movie, sure. but it is, but it rings through with a feeling of, no, everything about this is bad, and I, and I think that's it's brilliant the way they do that, the way they make it clear throughout that like this is kind of fucked actually, and that's because of who Barton is, right? What is your interpretation of the ending? Of this movie, what we find is uh, first those police officers come and try to implicate Barton Fink in the murder of Audrey Taylor, uh, if not more people, uh, because they know that he had a relationship with Madman Months. 
Munch ap- appears, kills the police officers, sets the entire hotel on fire. Barton delivers a script, which is completely rejected by Jack Lipnick, says basically that he'll he'll keep him under contract, but he'll never make any of the work that he that he produces into a film. And then Barton goes to a beach, basically uh, the same image, the same picture that was in his uh, uh, hotel room. It, it's recreated in real life with him sitting on the beach, and then a bird basically falls out of the sky. What's your interpretation of the, of the ending of this movie? I mean, I'll be honest, like, I don't have one. Sure. Uh, I I do in the sense of it is a um, surreal, kind of funny, but kind of upsetting way to end the movie. Sure. Um, it really makes you as an audience, I, I think it's meant to get the reaction it gets, which is that people go, what's happening? Like, is he dead? Is he in yeah, hell? Yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, right. with all the fire, I, I've seen so many people argue for the idea that he's in hell. And that he's always been in hell, or at least he's now in hell. And that's that's hard to avoid when there's such an extended scene in a burning building, right? They spend <laughs> yeah, right. a lot of time in that burning building. It's hard for people not to think, like, he's been in hell this whole time. And I think the heightened reality of it all kind of reminds people of different um, pieces of art in which you know it's hell because people are playing such a heightened version of themselves. Sure. Uh, the melodrama is almost a symbol that we're not in the in the in the familiar world. Uh, but I also think it's too and maybe this is just me being a jerk. It's too easy to come up with a oh clearly it's this. I just yeah. think mm-hmm. that the Cohen brothers resist easy explanations. Uh, and some of that is because it gives them a sense of mystery. And some of that is like, maybe they, once you open yourself up to like, here's the secret key to the movie, inevitably <laughs> people are going to see things that you didn't intend. And do you want that or not? And I don't think the Coen brothers actually like want to suggest that there's a secret meaning to all their movies because that would put too much responsibility on them to try to yeah. re- recreate that for everyone. Every movie is a secret puzzle box that you just got to figure out. That's actually shitty. That's I guess it would guarantee you a built-in fan base because people become obsessed with figuring out the puzzle, but it also puts a pressure on you to boil everything you do down to what it really means. Right. And uh, you know maybe it doesn't fucking mean anything. Maybe they just were like, Working on this script, high off of getting done Miller's Crossing, but not sure where this thing was going to go. And they're like, we just recreate the postcard, man. He's been staring at it this whole goddamn time. You know, it's like this, this, you know. And to what extent, I got to say here, Doug, Mm -hmm. is this movie just about Hollywood slash L.A. slash California, right? Yeah. Like. The, the the sense of alienation that Barton – sure, with the writer's block and being Jewish and maybe being a bit of a of – a, it's not that he's a fraud, but he's not sure that he's authentically what he appears to be. Sure. Maybe, I'm sure all of that is autobiographical, but the part that feels the most autobiographical to me is these two Detroit boys being in Hollywood trying to figure their shit out. I bet you that's the part that they – that is the most personal to them. Absolutely. I, I mean, when he's saying goodbye to Charlie, who's supposed to be going back to New York, uh, to New York, like to, to take care of some business with his insurance company, and we know that's a fraud, but that that's what he says to him. And how sad Barton is. He's like, you're the only person I know here, right? And then there's something really real that comes yes. out of that moment, yes. right? It's there's something really kind of sad and believable about it, and it's something that yeah, you could definitely see that being pulled from real life. And I'm with you. I don't think there's anything. I don't think that this movie can be simplified into a single message. I feel like it's more kind of a um, 
a, a kind of feeling that feels appropriate to the material that they're doing at the end, right? And him in this beautiful vista, you know, having a, a box which may have like a severed head in it next to him and seeing right. this burp. I mean, it just, it just feels like it's evoking a, a very, um, a mood that is just incredibly appropriate for I the mean, material. If I was going to say it puts any kind of bow on the narrative, it's this idea that he's now literally living the dream. Right. Yeah. He's in the space. He's the the stuff of fantasies is where he is. And he's uh, accompanied by death, watching a random bird fall out of the sky in a moment that I, I, I just like is just utterly ridiculous. It's just it's it's a reminder of how willing the Coens are to descend into comic stuff in a way that is quite silly, really. And uh, uh, and in that sense, it, it, it forces you maybe to take their stuff a little less seriously than you might be inclined to. In this film, Steve Buscemi plays the character of Chet. He's like a hotel uh, bellboy or the person who works the front desk of the hotel that John Turturro's staying in in the film. He only has really one major scene, and then his voice shows up a couple of times throughout the film. Does make an impact, certainly on his uh, intro scene in particular. What did you think of Steve Buscemi in this film? I mean, I think you could, if you wanted to be mean, say like, oh, this is his audition for The Big Lebowski. You know, like <laughs> Chet, Chet and What's-His-Name are very similar in a way because, it, you know, Steve Buscemi's capable of doing a lot of stuff, but the things that people look to him for the most are Fargo, you know, like angry Steve Buscemi, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or this guy, the quiet, kind of awkward, charming, you know, si- you know, in some sense, like... The only thing that's comedic about it is how unassuming and and sort of you know pleasant he is you know, uh, but it's it's a small role. It's a role that is more memorable f- for some of like the scene where he's looking down the hallway. You know, like like there's uh, he's more memorable for the context of his scenes than he right. is for what he's doing in the scenes. Mm-hmm. Is what I'm trying to say, and yeah. so like that doesn't mean his performance isn't good but it's it's the movie makes those performances more memorable because of the context of them and not because he's given something to do that's particularly huge though i mean i do think he's very amusing in those scenes that he yes i mean even his voice and also i think that we we've used the word unnerving a little bit anyway but there's just something unnerving about steve buscemi just being there even the way that he's introduced kind of coming from the underworld while Barton is rang that bell that seems to go on forever. It just kind of all adds to this, you know, kind of a minor sense of surrealism, but but still, you know, we know people that are like Chet in real life, the people who are like, yeah, they they know their job, they do it, but I mean, it's it's so funny going back especially with the recognition that Sibusemi would would have bigger parts in Coen Brothers films that they obviously recognize that he brings something to the characters that they've given him because he appears in Miller's Crossing in a small role as well. It's a small one, uh, but in this, you know what they say, there's there's no small uh, performances, there's only small actors. In this one, this is a good example of it because he definitely makes an impression in the few appearances in this movie he's in. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, it's not like if you are paying attention to this podcast because you want to be a Steve Buscemi completist. It's not, I think, an essential role for his career, per se. Mm -hmm. But it's so good, and it's in such a good movie, that I would, without hesitation, recommend... If anyone told me they like Steve Buscemi and I thought they had good taste, 
I would recommend this movie. Even knowing it's such a small part of the movie, it's just this, it's like the bit of a meal that isn't essential, but it adds that little bit of flavor that Mm -hmm. helps out. The scenes that he's in, I don't think someone else could do it as well, what he's doing, even if it's just a small thing that he's doing. Yeah, 100%. Liam, that is Barton Fink from the year 1991. I... I know that you don't like ranking this type uh, type of thing, but I mean, would you consider this in the upper category of Coen Brothers films? You know, I don't know what other you've already mentioned Inside Lewin Davis and A Serious Man. Does this kind of reach those heights for you? For me, you know, though that higher level includes things like No Country for Old Men and Fargo. Does it fit in that kind of category? Um, I think I might still like um some of their more maybe this is crazy to say to people but mm-hmm. i think of movies like fargo and no country for old men as a little more straightforward not that there isn't a bit of cohen brothers strangeness to them but i think there's there's a more serious turn to them as compared to say an oh brother where art thou or yeah they're easier like a, movies right and yeah. i don't mean that as a as a as a criticism in any way but they're meant to be a, a, appreciated by a wider audience i think this is um, more challenging than that. Um, on this watch, though, it definitely moved. I, I certainly will take it above something like uh, the Hudsucker Proxy mm. or some of the more like um, what was the what was the uh, western they did for Netflix? Was that both of them or just one of them? No, that was both of them. Yeah, it, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That that was good. I don't think that was bad, but it's not one of my favorites, right? Ballad of Buster um, Scruggs. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, uh, let me think. You know what? I need to return to Miller's Crossing, actually, because I don't sure. remember it. But, yeah, it definitely ranks high. I think the only reason I'm putting both Inside Lewin Davis and A Serious Man as high as I am is not because I think so many of these other classic ones, like Fargo probably ranks high for most people. I don't think it's necessarily obviously better than Fargo. It's just recently I found myself thinking about them, even though I do want to say, and and, and I'm not going to shy away from this, thinking too hard about a Coen Brothers movie I really do think is a trap. Like I really Mm. think Mm. that you shouldn't waste time trying to pull it apart too hard because even even if you're not trying to do it at a philosophical level which is how i see a lot of people do it even if you're just trying to get the references because they do reference so much hollywood and culture and whatever it's not there for you to figure it out like it's you get the movie more like just because you can name what old movie they're drawing from that doesn't make you a better watcher of the movie you know what i mean so (laughs) so when i'm thinking about them i'm more thinking about what they're doing and I'm not trying to understand some like underlying thing uh, but they, they just stuck with me recently and I think a serious man especially because though I don't think the movie is exclusively about religion some of the ways that it deals with religion is actually pretty familiar to other thinkers I've read thinking about mm. religion and so though I don't think they were trying I actually don't think that movie's meant to be super serious I do think there are points made in it <laughs> that could be applied to more serious ideas right no I agree with that 100% hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about a serious man at some point but not on this podcast because on the next episode of how do you do fellow kids we're going to be covering the first animated film I believe that we've covered on this podcast 2001's Monsters Inc now is this a movie that you've seen before Liam? <sighs> Much more challenging than Barton Fink, like just a real, <laughs> a real th- No, yeah, I've I've watched it. I think um I think a lot of early Pixar stuff is a bit overrated for me. Um, mm. I think I, I like some of their later stuff more, but it's still charming as hell. So I'm excited to rewatch it. The last time I watched it, I found myself a little bored. 
Mm. With it, not entirely like uh, you know, in the realms of kids' movies, it's still better than ninety percent of things made for younger people. Uh, but I do think uh, it's not my favorite of that that sort of Pixar stuff. And I, and I I don't know, but I might like the sequel more. But it's mm, been a while. It's been a while for both of them. Well, with Steve Buscemi and John Goodman in it, this is a Barton Fink reunion. In Monsters Inc. Uh-huh. from the year two thousand one, yeah. <laughs> that's what everyone considers it. Also, more <laughs> more murder, which is weird, you know. <laughs> I haven't seen it since it first came out, so I'm very curious about uh, revisiting it as well. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, or other great podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, of course, they can head over to Cinepunks.com. That's where the latest episode of our show is always posted, as well as a whole family of podcasts like Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult film podcast, uh, The Carnage Report, uh, which features the latest in horror news, or Tomb of Ideas, an exploration of uh, Marvel horror comics. Um, If they want to dive into our archive, which is not just this show, focused on Steve Buscemi, but a whole series of topics that are uh, mostly niche and unapproachable, but we love them, so... (laughs) Uh, Head on over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. We have all of the episodes we've done so far uh, there. You can also find us on Twitter, assuming Twitter exists still, at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. And Cinepunks is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uh, C-I-N-E, P-O-N-X. There's also a Cinepunks Discord where we're trying to encourage people to come and have conversations and engage with each other and kind of build a community there. Uh, If you'd like that link, just hit up our email, hit us up on social media, just find us wherever you want to find us and we'll send you that link. Yeah, and we're trying to do a few live screenings in the month of February 2023. So uh, if you want to be part of that, please join our Discord. If you want to follow Liam on Twitter, he's there at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. And I'm on there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And if you want to support the show, why don't you tell a friend? Why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? Every little bit helps. We're trying to get the word out at all times. It always feels like we're trying to build from the bottom. Hey, if you're a fan of Semi or know someone that is, spread it around. Tell people about it Or maybe you know Someone who's a fan Of one of the other people That we feature on our podcast Including Carol Kane Dick Miller Paul Bartel uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky More to come In the year 2023 As well Please check it out Over at our uh, Our Facebook page Or on Twitter At Cinemasmorg S-M-O-R-G But for now Liam We need to finish up We need to Take a little break But we'll be back Very soon With 2001's Monsters Inc Good night everyone Night night Thank you.